NZ Aerosports, Icarus Canopies, now Gyro. That's right, we've rebranded, and Gyro is our next generation. It honours our founder, as that's the name we knew him by, but Gyro also marks the start of a new chapter. And not to be biased, but it's going to be fucking epic. Long story short, we're more us than ever. So if you're new to the sport, or even a Sky God Ninja Turtle, welcome. I think our valiant leader Lucy, Gyro's daughter, Says it best. And we still got that fuck your attitude. <laughs> Rebrand! Woo! Rebrand woo indeed, Lucy. Anyway, head over to gyro.com for more info and get amongst your legends. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I'd better sell her a new one. What a sentence and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the can for another edition of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast and a friendly face right there I want to hear from. Please, who the fuck are you and what do you do? I'm Jason Maletsky and I teach people to pull two strings at the same time. <laughs> I don't think I've ever uh, ever heard it described quite that way. Is <laughs> how do you describe your job poorly? Right? I mean, I like it. I suppose if you break it down to its basics, that's exactly what you do. Yeah, man. Yeah, at man. least in the in the skydiving world. Yeah, in the skydiving world. Well, for those that don't know, uh, I mean, you've been doing this for a little while and you may have done a few things with those strings yourself but bring them up to speed on on who Jason Maletsky is and what you've done 
Uh, so I've been skydiving for 29 years yet now. I've got about 14,000 skydives. Uh, co-founder of Flight One, a legacy team member of PD Factory team, and co-founder of Trust the Journey podcast with Melanie Curtis. Man, um, and that's just the broad strokes because the fact of the matter is you've been you've been a name in the sport that uh, people have known for quite some time because you've you kind of been going for it for quite a while now. Thanks, team. <laughs> so uh, give us a recap. How did you get started in skydiving? What was the catalyst for it? Yeah, when I was uh, 21 years old, I was living the blue collar life and really wasn't uh, living a, a happy or fulfilled life. I, I was a pretty miserable kid. I'd been through a lot of shit. And uh, I saw a picture of my boss on the wall in his office doing a static line jump out of a plane. And I thought, that looks like something I want to try now because I was that uh, need for speed kind of kid. And, you know, if it had a throttle, I had it wide open looking to feel something. And uh, I went to a drop zone, made my first jump and my life made a 90 degree turn left <laughs> to a whole other existence that I didn't know was possible. And, and, you know, it wasn't a couple of years later that I was telling my boss, I quit. I'm not coming back. I'm going skydiving full time. And that's been my life ever since. Traveled the entire world, jumped on six continents. You know, I've been in, I've been blessed with this incredible experience that has been skydiving, base jumping, paragliding, air sports, and the family and the community that is part of it all. Which is absolutely incredible. And so all the way back then, you you see this picture of your boss hanging on the wall. You go make that first jump, and then you end up quitting on him to go pursue this life. Did he ever kick himself for letting you see that picture? You know what, man? At, at first, he was kind of like he, – he was a great guy, man. I really loved – Rick Sokloff was his name. And he gave me a lot of breaks. You know, like he let me get away with some stuff I, he probably shouldn't have. Sure. And later on, down the road, once I had made a career out of it, He'd messaged me and just gave me the round of applause. You know, the good fucking job, man. Fucking way to go to live your dreams. And he died kind of young, you know, like he he worked really hard and he died a number of years ago. And uh, his family still keeps in touch with me and reaches out. And there's just this beautiful relationship there that I truly appreciate. And so, you know, part of him, part of, I could see that he was like, God damn, put all these years into this kid. You know, he be was becoming a real great mechanic. And now he's quitting on me, but at the same time, he was you know cheering for me to go after it and go live my dreams and 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 make that huge. That was that. I mean, there's a terrifying thing. I'm gonna cut away from blue collar, you know, good job and go live in a van down by the river, you know, <laughs> try and make a living out of something and move to another country. You know, just a terrifying proposition. But yeah, do you think do you think that's what scares people the most when uh, people like us? kind of take that left turn is that it's not that uh, we're going to go do something like jumping out of airplanes is that we're setting ourselves up potentially for failure by bailing on the plan. I think it's a huge piece of it. I mean, there's no doubt that the idea anytime, whether it's skydiving or any other um, passion in life that doesn't seem to have a clear cut retirement plan to it, mm. that, you're going to do something risky that doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily got an exit plan you know that you're just taking that that what, what are you doing with your life sure you know sure what, are, what the hell are you doing 
right? <laughs> I agree. Well, you know, it's kind of yeah. funny because, I mean, you and I, you've been in the sport uh, about a year longer than I have. And um, now that I'm semi-retired for the most part, I look back at an incredible amount of hard work, but I still kind of feel like I got away with something, right? Which oh, yeah. gives me the warm and fuzzies. Like, yeah, I I, I can't believe I, I managed to make that work because it's such a departure from what is expected from people in the real world, so to speak. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I look back at my life every day and wonder <laughs> how was it even possible that this happened and I didn't die in the process. I didn't end up, you know, broken to bits or or just destitute, you know, and, and it's been it's no no doubt it's been divine intervention that has kept me alive. There's no luck in it. It's purely the grace of God that I'm here talking to you today. So thank so you. So now, God. um, <laughs> you you uh you make the decision to do this, and and uh you, you know you you say divine intervention and that kind of stuff. But do you think was there more drive in you than than other people specifically for something like this, or were you just built for skydiving? Was this was it easy for you, or did it feel like work as long as well as a passion? It's yes. And is one of those answers where it's both. Mm -hmm. So I was a very athletic kid. I grew up in gymnastics and athletics and always had that, you know, nature to be a monkey. I love climbing everything. So I did have the athletic ability at a young age and I did start young. And I also had the passion because I mean, I had nothing that was making me happy in life. And when I found skydiving, Suddenly there was something that brought me joy and happiness that I, you know, could have a day of just feeling fantastic because I was, you know, experiencing these, these parts of myself, you know, and getting over these fears within myself that I, you know, were holding me back in so many ways. Sure. So I think that my rough upbringing and the the childhood and early adolescence that I had really did set me up for success in the sense that it empowered me to do things that. I think it would be harder for a lot of other people to do. Um, if you don't know, I lost my parents at a very young age. So I didn't have these, you know, figures in my life that were there to either support or hold me back from making these decisions and the ability to run off and chase after something with pure, you know, just passion and, and you know, taking more risk than was probably healthy sure. was enabled by the fact that I didn't have to, you know, <laughs> explain to my parents what I was doing. Sure. <laughs> now, when yeah. I, when I reached out to you to, to catch up again, one of the things was um, basically researching fear and how people uh, handle it and process it and all that was fear uh, prevalent in your, in your beginnings in the sport or uh, has, is, has it been a, a, a hurdle for you? Absolutely present. My first jump, I was terrified, absolutely terrified. I, I was, you know, it was a ready, set, die kind of moment as I was climbing out the first, the first time climbing out the door. I'm right. like, okay, this is it. You know, I'm just going to do it anyways, but I am shitting bricks. And it stayed that way a lot. I mean, I can think 50 jumps later when I was, first time I was in Zephyr Hills making a skydive, I was the last one out of the plane, never been in a turbine plane before. And I was, Again, shitting myself, just completely terrified. And I can think of time and time again where that fear rose up to the surface and and wanted to take over, you know, throughout my career. Sure. You know? Do you think it's yeah. was it something genetic or was it something that you learned 
to control the fear instead of allowing it to control you. Because, I mean, obviously, it's a very fine line between fear and panic. Yeah, it's definitely learned. It's definitely learned. Um, I've had an inherent fear of heights my entire life which yep. is some irony and because oh yeah me ever, too and and a base jumper and working before that working on elevators which is tall really <laughs> tall structures i was i've still been very very scared of heights and it has taken me my whole life to get over that to the mm. point where i'm no longer afraid of heights unless i feel like i'm gonna fall right like that right? that fear spikes like a you know, like a, a heart rate monitor, sure. but dang, and it just fires up when I feel like I'm in a place of risk and I'm not comfortable anymore, making an approach to an exit or something, it suddenly gets sketchy and that fear just comes right back again. It's yeah. funny, right? I mean, same thing with me. I'm, I'm, I'm scared of, and I, I used to try and explain it to my tandem students. I'm not scared of heights. I'm scared of perspective. And in skydiving, there's no real perspective because when your feet are hanging out the door at 13,000 feet, the ground is just too far away to wrap your head around. But when you're on the top of a tall ladder or like you working on an elevator, you've got that perspective that really puts the fear into you. At least it always did for me. And then I heard the coolest thing ever, and it made so much sense when I heard it, was in regard to being like standing on the edge of a tall building or a cliff, that most people's fear is not that they're going to fall off, it's that they're going to jump, which Hmm. makes a lot of sense if you think about it. And so it's even crazier that someone like you would have a fear of heights and become a base jumper. Yeah. And honestly, my early base career is really really like where my big personal growth came in though mm. the, there was a lot of i mean i started a long time ago i started base jumping in 1995 so i've been at it for quite a while now and i've you know i've been consistent with it i've never stopped base jumping in that mm. entire time i've maintained activity the whole the whole time since the beginning and i can think back to the early days when i was climbing towers and some you know first time i climbed a thousand foot tower by myself and was sat up there alone and having to get past the physical mental blockade within myself and actually you know climbing on the outside of the tower getting ready to go and counting down and then my hands won't let go you know three two one and 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 the you know i just can't get past the the gripped energy you know and it's oh man that took some i bet it you know it's funny that you that you describe it that way because i was actually just today watching videos of bridge day that just happened and they have the catapult there and i'm watching the catapult going i think that might be the only way i could base jump is if they just literally (laughs) shot me me off the bridge yeah, yeah, man. It cuz I mean that fear can fully just take over. It really can. Was there something that taught you how to handle it uh, uh, specifically or it just came in in steps? Was it just that you wanted to do something so bad you learned how to handle it? Yes and no. I think early on I was just pushing through it, you know, and since then it has changed. The initially I, I, you know, I, there's part of me that has a plan and idea and how it's going to go and I've got it laid out. And then there's the fear arises and I don't know how to manage it. I don't have a skill to manage it. And then I just like fight with it and battle it until I break through and just go for it. 
And now that's very, very different. It, I don't function the same at all sure. anymore. I would not do that now. I would definitely, if I'm having fear rise up in me now, I'm going to take a second and kind of step back and ask why. Mm. Because now the way that I move is I, I'm not typically going to have fear unless there's a, a an elevated level of risk associated sure. You know, I know typically what I'm doing is within an acceptable risk to myself. And if it's not, then the fear comes up. And then those are warning bells that I should be listening to, you know, whether it's the jump itself, the conditions, something about how I'm feeling, you know, uh, there's, there's these triggers, right? So now... I, you know, I can stand on top of a cliff, have my toes hanging over the edge. I don't feel fear at all. Sure. Fear is, is nearby, but because I move through a system and I follow the steps that I've laid out and practiced so many times, fear is generally not present. Sure. There's an awareness of risk. I understand the danger, but I'm operating within a sphere that I've decided is acceptable sure. risk. And, but when I have changed that and suddenly it's a much lower exit or there's a element of, you know, weather or wind or conditions, or there's just a wiggly feeling. Sure. You know? Because when, you know, we have that, that gut knowing if something comes up in my belly and I'm like, oh, I don't feel good about this. I'm going to listen to it. Sure. I'm going to back up. Right. Uh, the technique well, that I use is breathing, you know, yes, Breath- yes, breathing's sure. the, the big one. So in that, Breathing and pacing myself and the weight, the the rate of my movement and keeping my brain on track is the the real big piece of that. I mean, it sounds like you uh, put yourself through what do they call it? Cognitive behavioral therapy before it was a thing, <laughs> you know, yeah. systematic desensitization of the really scary shit by learning that it's okay and that you can handle it and that it's safe, which is why the bells go off when you're in a position that it's something's different. Yeah. Yeah, That's cool. Agree. Yeah. So now um, back to your skydiving career specifically, um, you get started, you get going, you're enjoying the sport. The next thing you know, man, you're you're helping to pioneer what is now the most public of of uh, sports within the sport, which is canopy piloting. Um, how did that come about? I mean, how did how did you end up being where you were in that? Yeah. So my first day on the drop zone, there was a guy named Sean Lemire who was doing a high performance turn of the day. He had a stiletto 120, you know, mm-hmm. 200 plus pound guy. And he was doing a 180 front riser turn, which nobody was doing at the time. He was one of the guys that was truly pioneering those high performance turn back in the early 90s. Mm. And his you know, the, the speed that he was coming in at really impressed me. And you know, when I drove to the drop zone on my Yamaha V Max, you know, when I was 21, and that thing was a rocket ship of the day. Yeah. So I was all about the speed. And I saw this guy come sailing in and so much sound and and energy. And I immediately was like, I want to learn to do that. And you know, he of course he became one of my instructors, became one of my friends. We did about a thousand jumps together. We became teammates. And I learned to do high performance turns from him. And then we became teammates. We learned to do them together. We did some of the early um formation hook turns together four ways five ways into the tiny little landing area in titusville Mm. florida and 
sadly he died doing a high performance turn and impacted and and that was end of his life and that was hugely motivational to me to carry on his legacy and what he had taught me and i didn't know what else i was going to do at the time i mean i was this kid who had cut away from his only source of <laughs> income you know and now i was skydiving and i was like this is the only thing that feels good to me so this is what i'm going to do and i just stayed passionate about it and let that passion lead me and it turned into i mean a couple thousand jumps later and talking you know those days were i was at a thousand fifteen hundred jump kind of range sure up a couple years later three thousand jumps the competition canopy piloting swooping pond swooping was starting to happen and i decided very clearly there was a I can remember Johnny, you got, you've heard of Johnny Utah, right? Johnny Winklecotter. I know the man yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I remember being in Chicago and I'm in my car and I'm pulling out of the parking lot. And he's like, where are you going? He goes, come in. Hey, hey. And I'm like, I got to go, man. I'm going to Arizona. I'm going to be a pro. I'm going to be a pro swooper. I'm going to, awesome. I'm going to go be a pro swooper. And he's like, what? There's no such thing as a pro swooper, you know, like that just did not exist at the time. Yeah. And I was very consciously had my brand new, velocity 84 that i just bought wow and i was gonna go and train and i specifically wanted to go train in eloy to to learn from airspeed about their the way they train and see them train and turn what they did with formation skydiving into what i wanted to do with canopy piloting sure now as that happens so swooping is just starting to take off so we're talking what the pre uh pst days or as it's starting out Free. It, it so that was 99 2000 2000 okay. is when i moved, moved to eloy and at the time pro swoop tour hadn't started yet this was like uh, venezuela caribbean challenge okay uh, the daytona 5000 and the pond swoop nationals were like the, you know the first swoop meets wow wow and then and then shortly after that because uh i worked uh oh four oh five cross keys and by then the pst tour was going to wildwood so what it must have started in 2000 what two 2001 yeah 2002? right yeah it was para performance pro blade tour initially <laughs> yeah yeah Amazing. it was a mouthful Amazing. yeah and so that was 2001 and became pro swoop tour in around the 2002 time when Lyle and Jim partnered up. Sure. Know? Well, and yeah. you know, it's kind of funny because in the, in the skydiving world back then, that tour kind of got rock star status almost right away. Like I went from not having a fucking clue that anybody was swooping other than to just have fun. Like I was doing to watching the best of the best doing team training over the pond and cross keys to get ready to go do the tour. Yeah, for I sure. Mean, that, it, it was, was Heath it was... Richardson and all you guys were training over the pond. And that was when I was like, oh, fuck, this is a thing. Yep. Yeah. Man, oh, man. Yeah. And I was just chatting with Heath yesterday. Were you? So good to hear from him. Yeah. Yeah. I just sent him a message. My, you know, was, somebody sent me a picture of us from 20 years ago. And I'm like, man, look at those kids. You know, man, I remember. And I must have watched you as well um, way back in the day. But I remember watching him come over. And that's when you guys were flying the blue and white pd canopies and him setting up for just this massive turn over the cross keys pond and making it look 
effortless. His toe started literally as it went from grass to water and left the water as soon as it got back to grass. And then he just slid gracefully towards the hangar and awaiting beer. And you're like, that's the coolest thing I've ever fucking seen. It was so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Did you did you know that you were there when it was starting, when it was happening? Like, were you aware of what was coming? So, you know, when I made that decision in year 2000 to go be pro swooper, and then it was 2002 when I got the call from PD. And before that, I had actually drawn up a sponsorship package, like an application. I had done this like resume, like, here's who I am. Here's what I'm doing. I got some people to help me lay it all out. And I was going to walk in a PD and hand it to them and say, this is what I want because I want to be sponsored by PD because you guys have got the parachutes that I want to fly. Sure. And I believe in in the company's customer service. So, the, you know, the quality of the product and the customer service matched what I believed was important. Sure. And I drew up this whole resume and then I was in Florida. I was in Sebastian and I had it. And I was going to drive to DeLand and I went, you know what? And I threw it in the back seat. I said, I'm going to go fucking train and compete and they're going to call me because I'm going to win and I'm going to, I'm going to make them call me. Sure. I'm not going to go and say, Hey, Hey, help me. I'm going to go and show what I'm about. And so I laid my, I put my nose to the grindstone and every opportunity I could to jump and to train and compete and I got that call in 2002 and I knew that I'd been manifesting it for those last couple of years, not just through like, I'm wishing it to happen, but the sure. actions. Sure. And that call was the reinforcement that I needed to know where it was headed. But I'll tell you the truth. I started training to be the best, the world champion in those early days. And that didn't happen until 2006. 2006 mm. I think was my first world championship and every day that I would get up and look in the mirror between that time and I would tell myself you're the best that there is you've got it you can do this I didn't believe myself part of me knew that I wanted it more than anything sure but part of me still didn't believe it and it sure. wasn't until I started believing it and truly believing it through all the practice all the training all the competition that I actually could look in the mirror and be like, yeah, yeah, sure. Now you are. Yeah. I completely understand that. I can, I, I can, um, put myself back to just getting started, uh, flying jumpers and getting super busy in the twin otter and, and, uh, um, at least becoming skilled enough that the jumpers were enjoying flying with me and trusting, uh, in my skills, but going home at night going, I feel like I'm kind of a fraud here. I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm doing it, but I don't know if I'm doing it, you know, and, and it took oh, yeah. a very long time before I finally, you know, was climbing in the cockpit and flipping the switches and going, I know how to handle this. I know exactly what to do. I'm in the right place at the right time, but you're right. It's, it's rough when you want that something like that, but you go to bed going, no, I'm a fucking fraud. I'm they just can't see it. Yeah. hundred so, percent. So and but you just got to put on the costume and get up there and do it. You know, I mean, that's what it's all about. It, the, the, it's if you're doing it, the fake it till you make it thing is isn't really faking it. You're just doing it until you make it. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. That's that's yeah. true, right? I mean, fake it till you make it was a, a is a very popular saying. But you're right. You're not faking it. You're just uh, progressing towards it. 
Yeah, there's, totally. There's a whole lot to be said, though, for putting on a, a, a good facade. You know, there, it comes to everything. So there's a people like to make fun of like the matching jumpsuits, the matching rigs, the matching canopies, the whole thing, you know, and there's something to be said for when you've got, you know, really junior jumpers that like go buy all the matching gear in order to look the part before having the skills. But it does play into how you look at yourself to say, you know, am I polished package of professionalism? You know, and if you look sloppy and you don't have the matching parts, then you certainly don't look like the guy who's going to be stepping on, on the podium. Agreed. Because you know, you know what they look agreed. like. Well, you know, it was yeah. kind of funny because, and you'll remember back in the, back in the day, you'd go out to to Paris Valley in like '97 when the Flyboys were the shit, right? But back then, the scrubbier the jumpsuit, the dirtier the yeah. rig, the more hardcore you were, and so you kind of went after that. That if you had the worn out jumpsuit and the rig that looked like it had been dragged in the pond, you're like, oh, that guy must be a badass because look at him. And now it's 180 degrees the other way. You know, the good jumpers, whether or the good jumpers and flyers, whether it be in the sky or the tunnel, are the ones that are dressed in the almost F1 suits and and are crisp and clean and they've got their shit down. So it's it's the mindset, right? It's because yeah. you you're attracted to that mindset, whether it's a dirty jumpsuit or an F1 suit, you know. Yeah, and no, and I've worn both costumes, you know. Yeah. It's it's I've definitely had the rig that had three and a half, four thousand jumps on it and the canopy just as many jumps and everything, mm. you know, jumping in a pair of beat down old camouflage pants and no shirt and whatever. And and that, you know, that was the t- the part of the evolution. But there is something to say with like, you know, stepping up into the next tier of growth comes with, you know, stepping into also being recognizing you're going to be in the spotlight and you're going to be uh, a mentor, a leader, somebody that's looked up to. And the sport has evolved in a sense that it used to be really ragtag, right? Yeah. Like it was, it was ragtag. It was beat down old airplanes and it was beat down old gear. And nowadays the airplanes have come a long way oh, yeah. as well as the equipment and the jumpsuits. And yeah, it costs a lot more money, but man, I'd certainly rather jump high end, good looking gear than old ragtag stuff. I look at the old gear. I'm like, no, thank you. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, hell, we went from uh, you could get a complete used system that would do the job for $1,500, $2,000, and now you'll yeah. dump ten grand on top of the line stuff, but you're getting yeah. your money's worth, you know? You really are. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's the same with uh, um, the spotlight, right? I mean, back when it was the almost dirtbag lifestyle, access to watching someone else jump was buying the Free Fly Crowns Chronicles, That's where you saw it. You know, I mean, otherwise there was no YouTube, there was no Facebook that you were pulling up or or Instagram or you're watching these jumpers. So it was our own little bubble that we were in. You know, I mean, there was no mainstream to check it out, but now we're representative in a much, much wider world. Yeah, I can remember early on when I first got started, I couldn't resource any materials. And I asked one of my jumper friends who had much more experience, like, do you have any copies of old magazines or whatever? And he brought me like two massive stacks of <laughs> skydiving magazine and parachutist magazine. And I remember flipping through every single page of those and sucking up anything I could pull from them in order to, you know, expand my awareness and perspective and knowledge. Yeah, man. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, competition goes you're jumping your ass off in 06 you're getting medals 
Um, you're standing on the podium with teammates for a very long time, but eventually comes around the idea for flight one. Now, how did that come about? So uh, flight one was born in 2003, I believe around a campfire uh, on our very first PD factory team retreat. We had already been competing and people were asking us for coaching. We were getting these opportunities to come and like do swoop coaching. And we had been talking to Scott Miller, who was the founder of one of the founders of freedom of flight. And he was teaching an essential skills course back in the day, a seven jump one day program that taught people basic canopy flight skills. And we were, I remember sitting around the campfire on Hontoon Island with Heath, Shannon and Ian. And we were talking about how we needed to brand something that was separate from PD factory team. Cause the factory team was the, you know, the big brand image of this competition team. And we wanted to make something that was accessible to everyone mm. because it was like, no matter what level experience we'll teach you your very first, you know, how to flare the parachute all the way up to everything we know to do with high performance. Mm. And so the idea of flight one, the name came then. And I think it was early 2003, February, March, we had our first, uh, camp where we had you know pilots coming out to swoop with us and Scott Miller started taking you know we merged with Scott Miller so it's you know unofficially been around since 03 we incorporated in 06 when we got a call from one of the commands we had uh air ops commander call up and say hey we've seen what you guys are doing in skydiving and where we are in military parachute training is obviously 25 years behind you guys mm. and we we really need to get up to speed and to you know evolve our entire program and the way that we do things and that was a real eye-opener for us because you know here we are this you know high profile competition team and yeah we've been doing these swoop camps but we did not expect to get a call from these special forces teams that's wanted to do their they what they do is totally different from what sure. we do you know but they sure. could he could see that we obviously had what it takes to pass that along so that was the real big pivot in our growth was to deciding to incorporate and to start working with these sf teams and it's been a snowball since then because you're not going to keep working with these guys if you're a sloppy filthy rig jumpsuit Sure. Kind of, if you're not showing up on time, if you're high or hungover, forget it. Sure. It's over. Sure. Right. So there's that the professionalism required of a, you know, contracting with these teams required us to level up our game and completely change who we are as people and as a company. And it's been absolutely pivotal in the, in the growth of Flight One. Sure. Now, you and I both know um, you're 50 now. I'm 54. Time starts going by pretty goddamn fast. Oh, yeah. How how quick and and have you realized what's transpired between being that kid on the VMAX racing to the drop zone and looking back at the fact that you're not only training, you know, canopy pilots that are just out of AFF. You're training special ops military teams and have been for quite some time. I mean, 
does that soak in all the time? Do you look back and go, holy shit? Or is it just been such a, a gradual culmination that it just is? Life is nuts. <laughs> Life is nuts. It just gets weirder and weirder. Yes. So I don't know. It just keeps getting weirder, right? So I I remember being that kid who was just trying to figure out what the hell's going on and, and heading off into skydiving. And, and since then getting sponsored and getting to travel the world and suddenly having, you know, the, all this stuff on appear and unravel. I was like, how is this even possible to come <laughs> from really meager upbringing to, and, and then, I mean, I was a hippie, you know, I really liked to party. I did not expect to be the long hair guy with the earrings in front of a classroom full of golden knights and a bunch of Sergeant majors in the back of the room, sitting there looking at me like, what has this kid got to say to us that we should be listening to, you know? <laughs> awesome. So it, it's, it's crazy. And then, I mean, I'll touch on it a little bit and say like my, my journey here has been accentuated by not just the, the world of skydiving and base jumping, but um, the world of, uh, psychedelic hallucinogens sure. and and theogens, sure. the plants that bring us closer to God. So the perspective that I've gained with my exposure through psilocybin and ayahuasca and DMT and all these compounds have also added to the weirdness of it all. Like, how is this even, <laughs> how is this even what it is? And the irony is ending up, you know, 20 years later in uh, ayahuasca ceremony with some of these team leads that were there right at the beginning, you know, who are also on this spiritual journey to find themselves and to figure out how to be okay with everything that goes on in the world and, and to live a life that really feels fulfilling and feels, you know, balanced. Sure. Yeah. It's nuts, man. This it, whole it really is. is. Nuts. It's yeah. uh, it's been amazing watching, uh, especially now that I'm outside the U.S., looking back and seeing the changes that are happening in regard to plant-based medicine, in regard to psychedelics and and PTSD and anxiety yeah. and all this stuff, and seeing it's how it's becoming more and more accepted. And then there are those of us who kind of already knew this because we've been there and done that, but it's so rewarding to see it happening and to – I remember watching an interview – uh, probably a couple of years ago now with a police officer that in dealing with PTSD went through therapy with MDMA and went from being a everybody that uh, touches drugs needs to go to prison and yeah. this is bad war on drugs blah 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 bullshit to oh my god I was wrong the entire time this is literally how we save people's lives um, yeah. so yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that, uh, um, it might not be for everyone, but anybody that discounts it is doing a huge disservice to themselves and everybody else. 100% agree. Yeah. And life is really fucking weird too. <laughs> so I don't know if you heard this or not, but it's been recently declassified that there are now extraterrestrial you know, life right. is does exist and there right. are spaceships in possession of the government and stuff so if it's you know if you want to just talk about it getting weirder yeah you know. man i remember i think it was during the <laughs> uh during covid that uh, was the first time i saw a report that the pentagon released documentation on ufos and i'm like of course there are of course there are yeah. it just keeps getting yeah, stranger yeah. and i'm sure you're like me in that i sit here at 54 and i still feel like that 18 or 22 year old kid 
a lot of the time, it's just a lot harder to get out of bed. Uh, but I still have the excitement for things coming up. I still have that drive. I still uh, really, really, I, I love life and enjoy its craziness just as much as I did as a kid. I'm just a, a bit more cautious about it these days. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. You know, like I, I don't look at the world from the eyes of a 50 year old. I, I still yeah. feel, a, you know, a vibrant young age and, I think that that energy is reflected and, and people are able to see and feel that, you know, like you, you can tell when somebody's decided to get old and when somebody has decided that they're just going to stay young their whole life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my plan is to uh, finally drop dead at like 120 going, wait, but that's it. Yeah. <laughs> like I plan on going out by not being at all prepared to go out. You know I mean? Uh, yeah. I, I can't imagine uh, ever turning that corner. And I think uh, um, something like skydiving and the the doors that it opens for people, um, not just in regard to activities and community, but in personal growth, um, absolutely is an incredible driver for keeping you young. Yeah, for sure. It really is. And I think cha challenging ourselves, right? Like constantly being willing to learn new things and be a continue to be a student yeah. and to be not good at something. Yes. That's a, hu a huge, huge one. So I, I personally find a lot of value in always being willing to step into something new and fumble around and not be good at it and have the ego be challenged yes. in order to feel that same youthfulness, you know, in, in a lot of time in youth, we'll, we've got the confidence and no skills, yep. you know? And then as we get a little more mature, we recognize, we're like, I recognize I don't have the skills. So now I don't have the confidence right? because I, I know it's foolish to have confidence I shouldn't have. Sure. You know? Well, yeah. that age, uh, I mean, obviously the old saying with age comes wisdom is absolutely true. Um, but part of that wisdom is learning how to, again, continue to keep learning, taking on new challenges and, and trying to, you know, do new things. I saw a, a post recently from uh, an 85 year old gentleman on the beginner skydiving forum, which I uh, moderate a lot. And uh, he said, uh, Hey, I've got a, a pacemaker and my doctor doesn't know if it's advisable for me to make a skydive. He said to talk to skydivers and find out, what's going on with this or that. And the comments were exactly what you thought they would be. And they were hilarious. Most of the people were like, dude, you're 85, man, fucking go for it. Go big, yeah. have fun. You know, if it yeah. all goes sideways, you're 85 years old. Uh, and then uh, reading that, I think it was only a couple of days later that uh, the the woman that made the world record for the oldest skydive, the 104 year old yeah, made the jump. Four, yeah. And then 10 days later passes away and oh. yeah, yeah. But the post oh. that I, the post that I heard for that was everybody was like, Oh, that's so sad. And, and this and that. And I, I understood why they were saying it, but my response in writing was what a fucking rock star. She wins. That's it. Yeah. Everybody else yeah, can yeah. quit trying to be cool. Cause she wins. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic to like, just keep going after the things that you want in your life. Right. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Yeah. So now speaking of, uh, um, you do a podcast yourself um, with Miss Melanie Curtis. Tell me about the podcast, how that got started and what you guys cover when you're talking. Right. So the podcast is called trustthejourney.today. Uh, that's our website and our handle on everything on the internet. So 
back about five and a half years ago now, I found myself not skydiving because I'd been struggling with a lot of injury and it really wasn't a healthy thing for me to continue trying to do that thing in the air all the time because there's too much pain involved. And I needed something else to put my energy towards another passion and having been in the sport for so long and feeling like I'd learned so much, I wanted a to be able to give back. And I'd been watching Melanie for about a year and seeing how she was already doing that. She was already very vocal with her authorship, uh, her, her books, how to fly and her skydiving groups that she worked with. And I just reached out to her and said, I don't know what this is going to lead to or what we should do, but I love what you do. I love who you are and I want to work together. And so there's a little pause for a second. I encourage anybody who wants to do something with their life to just write that email because Melanie replied back, hell yeah, I love who you are and I love what you do. I would love to work together. And we just got on a call just like this one with less quality microphones (laughs) and, and less experience of how to speak, you know, publicly. And we just started recording our conversations about what we were doing with our lives and what we wanted to do and that we've just let it evolve. So it's been without clarity about where it was going from the beginning. So you see a lot of these memes out there that are like, just go for it. You'll figure the rest out later. Mm. Very much the case. Very, very much. So we're like, well, just start. And we figured out after a few conversations that talking and being vocal and and creating a platform where we could share our stories and then move towards our own growth and healing and and our plant medicine journeys and start bringing in guests so this is all just you know grown over the last five years now we got like 130 episodes up and we have a long list of guests and it's just a fantastic platform for not just us individually to share our journeys and to mentor others, but to the the community and the family that is built around it, where people feel like they can reach out and be like, Hey, I relate to that. That I, you know, I had somebody message me yesterday and they're like, man, I started skydiving in the nineties too. And I hear all the same things from my journey and I'd love to talk to you more. And, and so that connection is really what it's all about. Oh, it's huge, man. I mean, uh, every once in a while, I'll wake up to a, a message that uh, somebody commented on a specific show or or thanked me for having this guest on or or uh, decided to do something because of something they heard on the show. And that is better than any fucking sponsorship you could ever get. You read that and you're like, oh, well, I might have been having a shit week, but now I have to go to do another great episode because I might get another one of these messages the following week, you know, and it, it really is so much fun to do. And it's, um, I mean, beside the fact that it's cathartic for us as being the ones that are talking, there's a lot of people out there that just don't have, either don't have the people that they can talk to or aren't the talking type. And just being able to listen in on somebody else talking about their journey or working their shit out can be enough to get them over their own hurdles, which is amazing. You know what? Like I, I've always been a show off. Right. Like early on, I was a performer. Right? My mom in, built the performer into me because I had to, you know, I had to perform so that my mom would applaud and, you know, the, sure. this childhood stuff. And that that turned into showing off with the bicycle, with the motorcycle, with the parachutes, you know, and, and I can go and I could 
work on training and winning more medals, so what? Yeah. So what? I've already inspired uh, enough people, generations to go and pursue their own goals. And you can see the generations that have followed in my footsteps on my teammates' footsteps. And I'm like, what's more inspiring to continue to do the same thing that I've been doing forever over and over and over again, or to completely switch lanes and to work on a a entirely other part of myself that is way scarier to look at than the ground coming at me, the ground coming at me, whatever I get used to. Right. It's like, okay, you know, just get real close. Don't die. But What's way scarier than that is dealing with the parts of myself that scare me. Sure. Right. Sure. Well, you put yourself out there and you have a, oh, there's a whole lot more self-examination on a podcast than there is. uh, And during line stretching. (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. Right. (laughs) You know, there's a lot more going on. Well, and it's also, it's been very cool to see um, uh, more podcasts popping up um, and more people kind of doing the same thing. I've had, uh, I had a buddy of mine, asking um how do i feel about the competition with all the other podcasts coming and i'm like there is no competition the only thing a good podcast does is make somebody want to listen to more podcasts that's it i'm like the best thing that could ever happen to my podcast or your podcast is for there to be another podcast to spark someone to find more people talking about the same thing. So I love seeing all of this happening and hearing about your stuff and and uh, Shannon Pilchers and, and all the different podcasts that are out there that people can just soak up this amazing energy. You know, I, I'm an avid listener. I, I watch and listen to podcasts, both on YouTube, you know, Spotify, iTunes, whatever the platform. But I do like both watching and listening, depending mm-hmm. on the circumstance. You know, if I'm on a long road trip, or then I'll listen. Or if I'm like house cleaning, I'll listen. And then if I'm chilling out in the evening, put my feet up, I'll watch. And I flip between all kinds of different genres with sure. lots of different hosts and yet yeah, yeah i have my favorites i have the ones that i i really resonate with and i can hear kind of where they come from and and their values and what they're about really resonate with me but i've found more value from podcasts than television oh god any yes. day of the week oh god yes long right? form podcasts where people are being themselves talking off the cuff having Honest, unique conversations are absolutely amazing. They're absolutely amazing. Yeah, agreed. They, they really are. Well, and and everybody's got their own style. Everybody's got their own way of doing everything, their things, and everybody learns differently. Just like I'd say, AFS students are going to do better with one instructor than they will another. Doesn't mean that the first instructor is no good. It just means that this person vibes better with the second instructor. So it's nice for people to have all these different things to choose from. You know, for some, um, the way I handle things is a little too foul-mouthed or brash. For others, maybe someone's a bit too mellow or subdued. So you get all these choices to get this great information. Yeah. Yeah, I really have been enjoying um, Matt and Laurent's uh, exit point. It's been awesome to hear yeah. how they've been approaching things and bringing people in. I'm hearing all my friends and you know peers on there. Sure, and it's been it's been really enriching. But I mean, these are so like yourself. It's a skydiving, but person focused sure. sure. podcast, and and theirs is more base jumping. And you know, trust the journey is really about the individual. It's yeah. about the the listener's life experience 
within not just their sport, their community, their family, but most importantly, themselves. Sure. Sure. Well, and, and uh, a good podcast is going to aim you to do exactly that, right? Uh, examine what it is you want and don't want and, and why do I want this and how do I achieve it? How do I make it happen? And, and yeah. you look towards people that have been there before, um, for guidance, just if nothing else to kind of aim you in the direction that you can start to figure it out for yourself. Agreed. So for people to track you down with everything, um, in regard to jumping in regard to flight one and in regard to the podcast, again, give everybody all your information. How do they find Jason Maletsky and everything you're doing? Well, you can go to my website, jasonmaletsky.com. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook. Same thing. Uh, if you want to find trust the journey, it's trust the journey today everywhere on the internet and flight dash or hyphen the number one.com is, is the website for flight one and you can find flight one sport flight one military flight one tech on instagram facebook you can, uh, we're everywhere yeah you guys have got a few irons in the fire yeah yeah <laughs> dude as always incredible catching up with you like we said before we started recording i can't wait until you got to finish off that ink and come back to helsinki we'll hit the cold dip again do the whole rounds have some fun when you come back out I am looking forward to it, my friend, uh, both spending time together and getting the rest of that tattoo work done. Yeah, man, I'll be uh, very excited to see how that finishes out. So uh, it's going to be good when you make it out. Cool. I'll look forward to it. Thank All you. All right, brother. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe podcast brought to you as always by, well, wait, not as always, actually brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as NZ Aerosports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the Extreme Sports Collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, check out summitparachutesystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs, rigging courses, and more. By Flyaway Indoor Skydiving, go to flyawaytn.com and check out all the cutting-edge stuff to come. By Pure Spectrum CBD, head to purespectrumcbd.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the lunaticfringepodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available, hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.